just a quick message from me, Rebecca Adil, and I will be quick, I promise. Just a few things I want to say. I'm really excited to share the new series, series two of Killing Time. There's loads of exciting episodes in store and I just know you're going to love it. Secondly, the reviews have been brilliant. Thank you so much for that. If you haven't done it yet, a five-star review would be much appreciated. And finally, 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 if you would like to support the podcast, we do have a Patreon account, which I bang on about all the time. (laughs) Don't feel pressured, but it would be wonderful. You can find us on www.patreon.com forward slash killing underscore time. (sighs) And breathe. Enjoy the show. Welcome to Killing Time, the podcast that investigates the darkest moments of our past to shine a light on wider histories. I'm Rebecca Adil and I'll be your guide. Sit back, relax and listen as we delve into the latest episode, The Murderess, Sarah Malcolm. It's the 7th of March, 1733, and a vast crowd is gathered around the gallows at Mitre Court in Fetter Lane in London. Public executions are not so rare, but a public execution of a young woman found guilty of triple murder certainly is. The young woman in question is a 22-year-old laundress named Sarah Malcolm. of Sarah Malcolm opens a fascinating window into the early 18th century and plays out like a modern-day soap opera. The grisly details of the deaths of her alleged victims, former employer Lydia Duncombe and servants Elizabeth Harrison and Anne Price, were lapped up by Londoners. To take us through the story, I'm joined by historian and author of The Gossip's Choice, Dr Sarah Reid. So, uh, first of all, let's just get straight into it, shall we? And just, could you tell me who she was, you know, a bit about her background before the incident took place? Yeah, it's really interesting. So, Sarah Malcolm was born around 1710, and she comes from an Anglo-Irish family. Her mum's Irish and her dad's English. He's a gentleman. He's got an estate that brings in about £100 a year, so a very comfortable family. Now, It turns out that during her childhood, her early childhood, her merchant father had um, a bit of a penchant for high living. Uh, Daniel Mm. Defoe said he was much addicted to pleasure. Oh, gosh. (laughs) (laughs) And apparently he lost all their money, mortgaged his lands, etc., and they got in a mess. So they moved back to Dublin, where the mum was from, and they had to live off her family money, her income, her dowry. Mm. And such. But while she was there, apparently she had an exceptional education and it was a very happy family situation. After her mother's death, she and her father come back to London to do some business. But it seems like something happens. Her and her father don't get along as well as they did when the mother was alive. Or he's remarried is another story that goes around. But I I don't know which is true. Or maybe both are. Mm. He remarries. She doesn't like the new wife and they decide to part ways. So she finds herself at the age of around 20 in London on her own. So she's gone from being a gentleman's daughter in early childhood and and she's gradually gone down in circumstances as her life's progressed. So here she is in London. The only work she can get is charring work, laundry work, bar work. And so she works for the residents of the Inns of Court. 
and she works in the Black Horse at Temple Bar. But of course, in the pub is where she meets the criminal gangs who will, you know, eventually determine what happens to her. So the household that she's living in is is fairly female-centred, would that be fair to say? Well, no, she wasn't living with um, the people who she ended up involved in the robbery and murder. She was living right. on the floor below with Mr Carroll, but she had been working for that household. So that the household upstairs, up the four four pairs of stairs in the inner temple, which, you know, you can see today still, can't you? So she was charring for them until about Christmas time that year, which is 1733. But she seems to have left the household, and that could be because the woman she was working for, uh, Lydia Duncombe, had taken on Anne Price, nanny, who was about 17. So she probably got a full-time maid, so she didn't need... Sarah to go in. So she's living now in the floor below with Mr. Carroll and she's working as his laundress and his general maid. But upstairs you have got this female household. You've got Mrs. Duncombe who's 80 and bedbound. You've got Elizabeth Harrison who's or Betty who's 60 and then you've got a 17-year-old Anne Price. So Lydia's a wealthy widow. She's the you know for as far as it goes for women at the time, she's in the best position, isn't she? Because she's got her own income, her own inheritance a decent amount of money, and she can do what she wants. She's not answerable to anybody. By this stage, obviously, she's 80 and in and bedbound, but she would have had the best sort of life a, a woman could have, really, I suppose, then. Yeah, because obviously widows, do they do have a little bit more freedom, don't they, in terms of what they can, can and um, can't do. But in terms of the wider world and women's situation at this point in history, were there many things that they, you know, what would have been the opportunities for them at this time? Well, I think Sarah's own case shows that, doesn't it? She, she's well-educated, well-brought-up, intelligent, and she, the only work she can get as a single young woman is you know, laundry work, charring, uh, bar work, that sort of casual employment, hard work. You know, there's not the sort of opportunities to go into trade as a young lad in her position might have been able to do. It is quite limiting, isn't it? And and I think what struck me as well is how much similar it was to the Fanny Hill type story. You know, the naive young girl pitches up in the city and ends up corrupted. And so there's all that sort of element, which does, you know, it does sort of show how limited um, advancement chances were for women at this time, especially single women who hadn't got the protection of a father or some other relative. And then obviously, I mean, you know, that's, as you say, it's a kind of almost a classic story, isn't it? Because of these, you know, these ideas of what women could do during during the 18th century. But obviously, obviously it changes because there are a series of murders that take place. And could you tell me about that incident? Yeah. Um, so what happens is Sarah's working as um, a laundress. She's living below the Malcolm's household or the Malcolm family, as they called it in the 18th century. So she's got access to the building. And it's quite a, a, an imposing building if you have a look at them, the ones that are still standing now. She and her criminal friends cook up this plan. They know that um, Lydia Duncombe, the 80 year old widow is wealthy and they know that she's got her money in a box in a room yeah and so that they hatch this plan that they're going to rob her and I'm convinced it's a robbery that goes wrong I don't think there was any setting out to murder people so this is on Saturday Saturday the 3rd of February the robbery happens well we know that Sarah Malcolm goes up to the rooms on the Saturday night she ostensibly is going to see if Elizabeth the 60 year old maid is well because she's been poorly and then the next we hear is the next morning so Mr. Carroll and Mr. Gagan, who live on the same landing, got rooms opposite each other, decide that they're going to go for breakfast in Covent Garden. 
And I love all this because it shows the hustle and bustle of, of a household, you know, a multi, house of multiple occupation in the 18th century. Yeah, it's fascinating. You can kind of, you can really visualise it. You can. There's all this coming and going. So as they're getting ready to go out for their breakfast, Mrs Love pitches up and she wants to go and see how uh, Lydia's doing. You know, she was there the night before and so she obviously spends a lot of time there and she can't get an answer on the door. So while she's waiting, Mrs Oliphant, another friend, turns up they start immediately speculating on what's happened and think, oh dear, has Elizabeth died in the night because they knew she'd been poorly and things like this. And they work themselves quite up into a, a state, I think. They're joined by a Mrs. Rymer and between them they decide that, well, they see Sarah hanging about and they say, can you go and find a locksmith? And she comes back and says, oh, I'd, I'd had a look, but I couldn't see anybody around. So they cook up this plan that they're going to um, climb out the window and go along the guttering and break... Lydia Dungham's house window and climb in that way. So these three 18th century women, Mrs. Love, Mrs. Rymer and Mrs. Oliphant, do that. (gasps) And and as they sort of get into the room, they they find poor old Nanny Price, a 17-year-old, laying on the bed covered in her own blood. It's also almost sort of unimaginable, isn't it, the gruesomeness that they've just walked into. Yes. So And then she's not the only victim in that place no. though is she no so they notice her, she, her lying there then they see that the money chest is has been raided and is empty and all the cash and all the goods linen and, and things that were in there have gone so they explore further in the next room along they find out that elizabeth the 60 year old has been strangled and then they carry on to the next room where they find mrs dunscombe herself who'd also been strangled oh my goodness and how long does it take for this to be become publicly known is it immediate oh it's immediate yeah there's this huge hoo-ha so carol and gagan the guys who just decided they were going to go to covent garden for their breakfast spread the news themselves quite quickly and a crowd is already gathering around the house you know it word of mouth this doesn't take two minutes for um a crowd to gather um what i like what i find interesting is that the men go out for, to covent garden for their breakfast and i think they obviously want to give their house a wide berth for the day knowing that it's going to be inundated with police and you know the watch and investigations and people coming and going so they stay out until 1am so having gone out for their breakfast they stay out until 1am oh, the gosh. next morning first of all they're in the covent garden coffee shop for hours and then they go to the pub the horseshoe and magpie on essex street and they stay out until one o'clock when they come in, presumably a bit with the worse for wear, Carol can't believe that he finds Sarah Malcolm up and in his room and, you know, that's what on earth she's doing. And then he, he seems to panic a bit and he says, I don't want anybody who's associated with Lydia Dunscombe in my house and you've got to go, get your stuff and go, and throws her out. And it's in the course of her gathering up all her stuff that it's discovered that some of it's got blood all over it. But anyway, they, they take her word for it that um, the blood's come naturally, whatever. And well, she says to them, it's not decent for you to look at my clothes. And they take that, you know, it's two, two single blokes, they take that her word, don't look any further. And she goes off. But they decide that actually they better have another look round. And it's when they go into the loo or the clothes stool that they find another bundle of linen and a tankard. And this linen has got loads of blood on it. So they send for the watch again um and the watch have interviewed her and, and let her go um, but they call her back they arrest her and she says that the blood on her linen is from an indisposition basically it's because she's having her period and that's what makes this such a fascinating case for you know for, for a woman to be talking about this as she does in front of all these men in open court as we'll get onto at a trial that's what sparked my interest in the case because you just don't hear of women talking in the open about things like that but obviously this is you know serious matter 
Yeah, gosh. So then she's arrested and it goes to trial, doesn't it? Could you describe the process of that trial and how much attention it garnered at the time? Oh, there was a huge public interest in this. I mean, it's got all the elements there, hasn't it? So it's a a young girl. She's only 22. She's well-educated, well-spoken. This is a grim murder of three women in their own house, which also, again, is incredibly rare. And news of it spreads like wildfire and so many people are interested She goes to trial. Initially, she's only tried for the murder of Nanny Price because, as the judge says, if she's convicted of that, she'll be sentenced to death and that is enough to put the court and all the witnesses through. They don't need to then proceed with the other two. And Sarah is extremely assured in the witness box. She can see her education and her um, ability. She cross-examines people on the witness stand. She interrupts and... We do know that she was on her period, which is interesting, isn't it? Because the court, oh, right. the court do dismiss that. Daniel Defay, when he writes about it in the 1740s, says that that was a frivolous excuse. He doesn't even say what it was. He just said she made other frivolous excuses because obviously he doesn't want to talk about that. There's a sort of, well, we would call it an assault, but then it was um, she took it in her stride that this um, fellow prisoner, Johnson, claimed he'd got the rights to examine her. He hadn't. He'd found in her hair, he'd seen because her hair fell down and she'd got, you know, the equivalent of about of 50 guineas tucked in her hair. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it's about £5,000 in today's money. Anyway, he says, because he's found that he's got the right to examine her and he starts putting his hands up her skirt and she says then, no, stop it, I'm bleeding. Uh, you know, words to that effect. And he sees evidence of it and he does stop. So, yeah, so that is true. But what she argues, and if you like, I can read a little bit of her defence here. Oh, yes, please. She says, modesty might compel a woman to conceal her own secrets if necessity did not oblige her to the contrary. And tis necessity that obliges me to say that what has been taken for the blood of the murdered person is nothing but that free gift of nature. This is all that appeared on my shift. It was the same on my apron, for I wore my apron under me next to my shift. The master going out of town desired me to lie in his chamber, and that was the occasion of my foul linen being found there. The woman that washed the sheets I then lay in can testify the same was upon them. And Mr. Johnson, who searched me in Newgate, has sworn that he found my linen in the like condition. This was the case. is plain. For how is possible it could be the blood of the murdered person? If it is supposed that I killed her with my clothes on, my apron indeed might be bloody, but how would the blood come to be on my shift? And if I did it in my shift, then how should my apron be blooded, or the back part of my shift? And whether I did it dressed or undressed, why was not the neck and sleeves of my shift bloody as well as the lower parts? And this is quite extraordinary, isn't it, to think that she's standing up in court. She's already admitted the robbery and knows that she has stolen enough to be hanged and will be hanged. So it's not as though she's got anything to gain by denying the murders if she'd done them. And to actually, you know, and to stand up and talk like that about, although she's using, you know, um, euphemisms, isn't she? The free gift of nature and and disposition and things like that. She is talking quite, you know, incredibly frankly about a personal matter. Did this surprise anybody? Well, I don't think they believed her. (laughs) I don't think. Yeah, okay. It it disappears from a lot of the accounts. You know, as I say, uh, Defoe just says she made some other frivolous excuses and later accounts don't don't talk about it at all. They talk about the blood on the tankard being from a cut on her thumb, which she had got. She had cut her thumb. And so that's enough, really. And that it just generally is taken as the, the blood of the murdered people because 
The jury hears all this and all the people that we've mentioned, so all those women who were climbing about on the roof going through windows and the, the men who went to Covent Garden for their breakfast, Carol and Gagan, all of those are part of the witness, the witnesses that are called. OK, so it's a very female-centred trial then and it's really putting female issues at the front and centre of the case. I mean, it's her defence, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Her period is her defence. That's really fascinating. <laughs> But then unfortunately for Sarah Malcolm, she is found guilty, isn't she? Yeah, the jury just take 15 minutes. They're they're not in any doubt at all. It does gain interest from some notable people from the period as well. So Hogarth, he draws a picture of her, doesn't he? He draws two at least and a painting. Him and his father-in-law pitch up at uh, the prison a few days later after she's been convicted and sentenced. And he does a sketch which he makes, you know, he sells incredibly well afterwards because people want to own a piece of this notorious case and he later did an oil painting which ends up in um, Horace Walpole's palace in the mid-century does it yeah gosh so strawberry hill it ends up there and of these two sketches that he did he then does four engravings and a woodcut because the gentleman's magazine commissions a woodcut to put in their magazine and so mm-hmm. it's a hugely profitable venture for, for Hogarth. Uh, and then there's a pirated copy as well after William Hogarth that's got Sarah Malcolm and it's called No Recompense But Love and it's contemporary. Uh, but it's got Hogarth's father-in-law, um, Thornhill, in the background and it's got her, a window showing her execution scene as if she could look mm. out on her own execution. <laughs> Um, But it's interesting what they put in the foreground in these pictures. So in some of the engravings, she's got a pen and ink in front of her showing that she's a learned woman. And what I think what's also telling is that she's got these long, slender fingers and there's a lot about her that shows that she was um, a gentlewoman. But the the picture that comes afterwards is less flattering. You know, it makes her lips thinner and her features harder as if to show that she was, you know, a, a bad woman. And in other pictures, that uh, I think the painting's got um, a rosary in front of it. So again, that's a little clue, isn't it? What people are trying to imply about her. Yeah. Oh, that's so interesting. What do you think? What do you think it says about society at this time that people were wanting to go and visit and hear about and actually see prisoners and um, convicted criminals of her type? Yeah. Well, I mean, it's the same as the sort of gossip mags we get now, isn't it? You know, the notorious. Um, headlines you see at the front and I think it's part of that same society and also I think it taps into what Greg Jenner's arguing in his new book isn't he about that being around the time of the birth of celebrity proper mm. uh, and that culture mm. of you know cashing it and buying a souvenir you know buying a print uh, of this event and they also went to see her after she was dead in fast numbers as well which we can get on to after um, her execution so her notoriety didn't didn't stop at that point Okay, so yeah, let's talk about her execution then. Where did where did it happen? And um, I'm assuming it did draw in quite a um, decent crowd. Oh, it was huge. So she was executed at the scene of the crime. So they erected a gibbet at Fleet Street um, facing Mitre Court where, where the people were killed, where the robbery happened. And there was this massive crowd. I mean, for, for a 22-year-old girl to be wheeled in a cart before this baying mob. And the crowd, it can give you a really good example of how thick and dense the crowd was. Mrs Strangeways, who lived in Fleet Street near Sergeant's Inn, crossed the street from her own house to Mrs Colbert's house on the opposite side because she wanted a better view. Over the heads and shoulders of the populace, Defoe, Defoe tells us. So she crowd surfs across the road to her friend's house. What? <laughs> 
crowd surfing an execution. Oh my gosh. Absolutely. I couldn't believe it when I saw <laughs> Because that's the thing. I mean, you always think when you see these like impressions of public executions and, and people from history, I always think, you know, this, they're complete caricatures. That's not realistic. But actually, to have someone crowd surfing to go and see, to get a better view, that's hilarious. Wow. Sarah herself seems to be a bit more dignified than, than, than the crowd. Uh, she's neatly dressed in a crepe morning gown, white apron, and apparently she's got a contrived, sort of slightly haughty look about herself. But I dare say it was nerves because although she got the support of um, Reverend Piddington and various other men of faith, as soon as she was put on the gibbet, she, she fainted, which is, you know, understandable, I suppose. And then she's revived, of course, and hanged. And then her body's taken to an undertaker on Snow Hill where people queue up in numbers to go and see her body. And there was there was all sorts of medical, magical properties ascribed to the corpse of convicted murderers, of course. You know, they, they, could, they had healing qualities and things like that. So that could have been part of it. But I think also it was just to go and have a good gawp at this, you know, this notorious woman, this very young woman. And there was even a gentleman, apparently pitched up, immaculately dressed in mourning, full mourning, who went and kissed her, you know, a bit Sleeping Beauty-ish. And started, really? Yeah, and gave out um, money to, to her various attendants. That's so strange. Yeah. Um, and then, obviously, I mean, it's hard, it's always hard to pick out a single case and try and, you know, say whether it had a, a big impact or legacy. But as a whole, these types of cases, the ones that attracted the interest of people such as Hogarth, um, so, you know, the cases like Sarah Malcolm, what, you know, did they have a long-term impact? What What is their legacy? Well, her story keeps going throughout the 18th century. It's like, you know, it's almost like because it's unbelievable that a young girl of good breeding sort of thing, as they'd say, ends up in that, you know, reduced that quickly. And, you know, as we were saying earlier, it has got so many similarities, hasn't it, with like Fanny Hill and people like that who end up corrupted and at the bottom of society. And and Mm. these sorts of stories about her circulate and they get added to over the years. So at some point in the 18th century, a rumour starts that she was involved in another murder four years beforehand in which uh, a man was hanged. And um, he says she gave him the razor uh, and things like that. And it's all just adding to her uh, notoriety or her legacy, her confession, her deathbed confession that this Reverend Piddington gets from her and publishes, he gets permission, publish it. And it's very articulate, it's very detailed. And I think that's super interesting because she doesn't, you know, even in her confession, and this would have been important to her because she knows she's going to meet her maker, doesn't she? If she was religious like everybody, she's not going to want to go and meet her maker having told made a false confession. And she gives a really detailed account of what happened, confessing freely to the robbery. But swear, you know, even at that point saying I wasn't involved in the murders. And there is another fascinating detail there that her skeleton is put in a glass case and put on display at the Botanical Gardens in Cambridge. Oh, my gosh. So I'm going to know if they've still got them. If it wasn't for lockdown, I might get in touch with them. (laughs) Yeah, they might do, actually. Crikey. Just before I leave you to it, I just want to ask, do you do you think she did it? Well, you see, I used to just take it at face value, and I, but I think the more I've read her confession, especially now I understand a bit more about the weight of these confessions uh, on early mm. modern people, I, I think, you know, I, I'm very torn. I think that her argument is very persuasive. We know that she was having a period, and the fact that she, you know, she goes to her death with a written confession that says, you know, happy to 
to say that I, I, I was part of the burglary, but I didn't do the murders. Just, you know, it is very persuasive and I think it's something worth considering. Sarah, on that note, thank you ever so much for um, for doing this today. It's um, it's a really, really interesting case. And I think we could probably talk, we could probably, and we do need to have a whole other episode on early modern medicine, because I know that's your speciality. And there's so much to say about that. But for now, thank you. Thank you very much for having me. Bye. The public nature of Sarah Malcolm's case and the fact that so many people turned up to see a young woman hanged tells us an awful lot about 18th century society. It would take another century for public executions in this manner to be outlawed. The details of Sarah Malcolm's trial are available to read online via theoldbailey.com. History.